Now, so um, this, um, for me, was a significant change to some theological perspective, I guess I'd say. And um, Pastor Tuttle and I talked it over at length over the last eight weeks. And by the way, they're in Malawi, uh, Africa, right now with the Vroomans. Um, for, a, for about two weeks, he'll be back somewhere around the 15th or 16th of May. Uh, that's why he's not here today. So, which is great for me because this is like my favorite Sunday of the year. Uh, the first Sunday with students and the last Sunday with students are, are my two favorites. But, so what I want to talk about is reestablishing the first command. So Cody mentioned Genesis 1, and I found it a little bit interesting because that's the context for everything that I'm going to share today. Uh, one thing that you notice when you read in the New Testament is that the Apostle Paul, as often as possible, went back and he tied his arguments in the New Testament to the Genesis 1 pre-fall theology. So the idea was Genesis 1 pre-fall was what heaven on earth was intended to look like or did look like. And so when Paul creates his New Testament theology, he ties back to pre-fall on earth theology as often as possible. What that allows is, he's saying, what was once and was always intended to be, but was broken with the fall of man and sin, has been restored. And so now, in the New Testament, I'm going to point back to pre-fall garden theology as often as possible, so we would know what life today should look like. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, and that's what we're going to present out of today. So when you, when you read the Genesis 1 creation account, it's evident that the Garden of Eden, and therefore Adam and Eve, were placed at the time of creation in a hostile environment. This is imperative to our theology today. So what we have to understand is that the Garden was placed in a hostile environment. That was the rest of the earth. The Garden itself was beautiful, a glimpse of heaven, heaven on earth, literally, but everything around it was hostile and at minimum required tending. So this becomes very evident when you read God's first command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. If you have your Bible, take a look. Genesis 1.28 is going to be the context from which I'm going to speak today. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We read Genesis 1.28 as quickly as I just did, and we're on to 29, and we forget largely that he's talking to Adam and Eve about far more than just having babies. We read Genesis 1.28, and we go, yeah, sure, have kids, have a good time, adios, and then they messed it up. Genesis 1.28 is the first command. It's the command that was never revoked. And it's still the command today. When he says subdue the earth, he's, this is a military phrase. Okay, This is important. So he doesn't say, uh, you know, go out and wander around earth or just enjoy what I've made. He says subdue it. In other words, there's space outside the garden that's still a mess. And you've got to go out and you've got to take it over and you've got to cultivate it. And then you've got to rule over it. So God placed the garden and Adam and Eve in a hostile environment. In other words, 
They set him, he set him up to be at war. And he set him up to win. This is imperative to our theology today. A lot of what Cody was talking about is simply subduing the earth. What does subduing the earth mean? It means to take what is not heaven-like or God-like and make it so. Is there, are there broken bones in heaven? Just real basically. Are there broken bones in heaven? No? Anybody walking around that can't see? No. no. So subduing the earth is simply taking what should be as it is in heaven and making it so on earth. That's subduing the earth. It's very simple. However, that was the initial command in Genesis 1.28. That's the command today. All right. So we have to understand that the context for all of life from the time of the garden forward is in conflict. Really important. So I spent five or six weeks talking about that this spring. So that's all I'm going to give you for today. So now the application. For us as Christians, there are spiritual applications and natural applications to this command. And I'm going to go through it more thoroughly, so don't expect to remember the whole verse just from me breezing through it. Spiritual applications, natural applications to the command. Sometimes these two applications overlap. But the command is relevant to all Christians, single or married, old or young. The command from the garden was re-decreed by Jesus in the Matthew 28 Great Commission. Understand, though, that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he was adding application to the first command. So when he gave the first command, it was all natural application. That's why the whole Old Testament is about literally subduing the earth. Through warfare, through the killing of the enemies, it was a literal and natural application. It did not have a spiritual application yet. Why? Because until Jesus ascended to be at the Father and the Holy Spirit was given, there was no spiritual application to be applied. So when Jesus shows up in Matthew 28 and he gives the great commission, he's adding a spiritual application to the initial command that was given in the garden, Genesis 1. This is really important. He didn't revoke the natural application. He added to it. So now we have certainty that the great command of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it has absolute application for every single Christian. Natural application for some, spiritual application for all. So again, he didn't revoke the first command, he added to it. So today... I'm going to focus on the marriage application of the Genesis 128 command. And I have two key reasons for doing this. You're all like, this is a graduation weekend, you idiot. What are you thinking? Um, that's okay. I'm, I'm accustomed to being called that. So I said two key reasons, but I, I have two reasons and then another little caveat. So some of you in the next five to ten years will enter marriage. I know today all you're thinking about is, can I get a job, and will I be able to eat a month from now if dad kicks me out? But you will get married probably in the next five to ten years. A lot of life changes will happen for you, and obviously I'm talking about students, graduates. So I feel this is relevant. For those of you who are graduating, this is my last shot at you. So I'm trying to give you a message that you'll be able to apply for the next 60 to 70 years. <laughs> totally serious. I'm totally serious. This is, this is a game changer with regard to how you look at marriage. Game changer. So I want to talk to students, and then two, I want to talk to parents. Because some of you have been married for decades, or you've raised children, 
and yesterday you were celebrating the effect that your relationship or the way you've raised your kids has impacted your kids. At least you should be. You should be celebrating that. I want to show you biblically how the way you raised your children ties back to the first command that was given in the garden. My hope is that you will, despite your shortcomings, your struggles, even your failures, that you'll be able to celebrate what you've accomplished in getting your children to the point they're at today or yesterday. And for those of you who feel this doesn't apply to you, you're like, marriage, okay. Um, Either you feel called to singleness or, you know, you're married and you wish you weren't. I'm just kidding. There's no one like that in here. Um, It's a rough crowd. Um, Stop for a moment and consider that you probably know someone who's married, about to be married, or one day will be married. I think that covers all of us. Um, However, there are spiritual applications in this first command that apply to all of us. If you don't think this applies to you because I'm, I'm using a marital application, please consider what other applications, spiritual or otherwise, that, that exist that do apply to you. Okay. So how I'm going to start is with a little sidebar. In Christian circles today, when you t- hear presentation about marriage, what is the chief objective of marriage largely presented as? It's a rhetorical question. I'm going to give you the answer as I see it. I see it as the the idea for marriage today is that the chief end, the chief goal is that you have a great spiritual, emotional, and physical relationship, right? I'd call that romance, that you have a romantic relationship that's fulfilling spiritually, emotionally, and physically romantic. And the really advanced ones or the super Christian ones say that, yeah, and then that demonstrates the love of Christ for the church to the world. Have you heard otherwise, I guess? Because I've, I've been to marriage seminars, I've heard the leading people speak on marriage, and at the end of the day, what they're telling me is the ultimate end goal for my marriage is that it's romantic. Right? Okay. That's okay, so we're just going to set that aside. Number one, marriages exist in the context of conflict. Genesis 1.28, here's the first marriage, the first wedding ceremony. You ever think of it that way? Genesis 1.28 applies to all believers, yeah? But it also was the first wedding ceremony. Genesis 1.28, God is officiating the first wedding. And it says, he blessed them. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion over the dot, 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 dot. So up until just a few months ago, I always read that as basically one statement. But it's not. And each of these separate statements is separated by an and. In other words, he's he's not making one blanket statement. He's saying, I'm giving you five objectives in the context of marriage. Be fruitful. And all God's people said amen. And multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and take dominion over it. Those are the five 
primary objectives that were given in the first command to all believers, but specifically for marriage. So if you're to step back and say, what is the chief end? What is the main goal of marriage? The main goal of marriage is not romance. The main goal of marriage is actually be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over it. So as Christians, I would say we've been seeking marriage and chasing uh, romance in our marriages, and we're stopping short of the real goal line. And I'll explain why that matters. When you talk about romance, essentially what you're saying is you should look for a relationship that satisfies you, and then you can satisfy that person. At the end of the day, it's selfish. But romance is meant to be a contributing factor to the greater objectives of marriage, that being fruitfulness, multiplication, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over it. So romance should fuel these five objectives, not be a chief end in and of itself. A romantic marriage, if measures aren't taken, results in fruitfulness. Right? Have you been downstairs? It does. That's what happens. All right. So the five key objectives, we got them. You guys taking notes? Fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over it. Five. These are not, the last time these are given is not Genesis 1. So for this to be a true theological shift, it has to be supported by the whole council of Scripture. This is supported in the Song of Solomon. It's also supported in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, picture of Christ's love for the church. The Song of Solomon, I could go on about it, but at the end of the day, what you need to understand is that the end goal in the great love story, the Song of Solomon, was not just that they'd share love, is that the beloved would come away with the bridegroom and participate with him in his endeavors. It didn't just end with romance, in other words. It carried on, and she became his co-laborer, his partner in all the things he was going to do. And you see that culminate in Song of Solomon chapter 7. The other place it's supported is in the New Testament, Ephesians 5. When you talk about Jesus' love for the church, is the chief end of the church that we would sit around in a room and go, oh, he loves me. <laughs> no. If that's where your relationship with Jesus terminates, you have fallen far short of what he wanted to call you into. And that's a partnership as a co-laborer, as someone who goes and does great exploits with him. When he gave the Great Commission, he didn't say, go ye therefore and sit in a room and talk about soaking and how much he loves me. He said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Subdue the earth. So it's supported by the whole council of scripture. And there are other places too, but that's enough so that we can get into the meat. One other thing I'm going to point out, before the chief objectives came to Adam and Eve in the initial marriage ceremony, you have to understand that the context in which they lived was an already cultivated garden. This is important because it adds a step for us today. So when Adam and Eve received the first command from God in Genesis 1.28, 
they were living in a garden that had been cultivated for them. So heaven existed in that place. They didn't have tremendous effects from the fall because there was no fall yet in Genesis 1. We don't have that same luxury today. We have to cultivate our own garden. And this is really important. So for those of you who are starting out and you're not married yet, now is the time to cultivate yourself and your home as a garden where heaven dwells. When you're looking for a spouse, we spend a lot of time in looking for attributes of of others. It's far more important that you focus your energy on cultivating you and becoming the spouse that your partner will need to co-labor with throughout life. So you have to cultivate your garden. Adam and Eve didn't have to. So this is the time, young people, where you should be cultivating your garden. When you enter into a relationship, make sure it follows heaven's attributes. This is a simple one, but one that my wife and I committed to very early in our relationship. Is there yelling back and forth in the throne room of God filled with accusation? Does the father yell and scream at the son and accuse him of wrongdoing? No. So should there be yelling in our homes accusing our spouse of wrongdoing? Uh, Not if our marriage reflects the realities of heaven, there shouldn't be. So when you enter in a relationship, make a commitment. I'm not going to raise my voice at you, and you're not going to raise your voice at me, and we'll discuss things rationally and and logically and respectfully. So we have to cultivate the garden before we enter into the five objectives of marriage. So that's important. All right, you ready? Five key objectives. Hold on, let me give you one more thing I cultivate. All this means is to make the wrong things right. When you find something in you, that does not align with the kingdom of God on the earth, make it right. Because you have the Holy Spirit, you don't have an excuse anymore for it to remain wrong. That's really important. That's what Cody was talking about with freedom. You have the Holy Spirit now, so if you see something that doesn't align with God, you have the power to change it so that it does. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Our homes, our marriages, and our lives should be a reflection of heaven and should demonstrate to the world what it looks like when the kingdom has come among them. This is where the romance fits in. Romance furthers the greater objectives of marriage. All right, so here we go. Five key objectives. Are you ready? I'm trying to get you guys out of here without keeping you here too long. I know everyone's got to get on the road. These five key objectives make up the great command. And the first command. And they set the vision for life for both single and married folks. Today we're going to focus on the marriage application. Be fruitful. This is the one that everyone goes, all right. Well, sometimes they do. Sometimes they go, God, no. Have you seen those little terrorists? (laughs) Be fruitful means to enjoy the result of your romance. Have children. So be fruitful is the actual having of children. We always think that's what multiply means, Rob, but it's not. Just messing with you a little bit. 
Be fruitful is bearing fruit, having children. If you're not married, don't do this yet. Surprise. <laughs> if you're not married, the application is have children of the Spirit. Right? It's like Cody said, I want salvations. Those are children. That's being fruitful. So while I'm talking about the marriage application, think of the spiritual ones that if you're not married, apply to you. Be fruitful. Have spiritual children. Paul didn't remarry. It's considered that he was probably married as a Jew, but that's neither here nor there. He didn't marry as a Christian, yet he had hundreds and thousands of children. He talks about being a father in his letters. He didn't have natural children, so he applied only the spiritual application to this. So think about those things if you're not married. The marriage application is still natural children. So now I'm going to pause for a second, and I'm going to probably anger about three-quarters of you. If the chief end of marriage is romance, you may or may not have children. Depending on how you see Children fitting into the impact of your romance. I didn't want kids, personally. I got married, I did not want kids. At all. They were going to mess up my romantic relationship with my beautiful wife, and they were going to get in the way of ministry. Never realized that the children are the ministry. Foolish. See, I thought that the, the first command in Genesis 1 had been revoked and all that was left was the Matthew 28 command. But the first one was never revoked. The Matthew 28 was simply added to it. And what he did was, for those who could not have natural children, he gave application in the spiritual realm. But the primary application is still natural children where we be fruitful. See, when, when all we're focused on is romance, we're probably going to stop having children and they start to affect our income too much and make you know, our romantic life more difficult because now we've got to spend more money on kids. I can tell you, i got four. They're not inexpensive. And it challenges the romance. But romance looks different to me today than it did when I first started out in marriage. The things that I see as romantic are different. See, early on, romance was sweet nothings, nice date nights, boxes of chocolates. You guys know. Jake and Georgie are sitting there like, oh yeah. It's great, that's good. That's great, I'm not faulting that. But romance changes. Now it's romantic when my wife volunteers to change the baby's blowout instead of handing her to me. I'm like, good Lord, she is gorgeous. Because the objectives changed, romance did too. We get date nights like semi-annually. That's when we're rocking and rolling. It's usually biannually. That's not twice a year, that's every other year. But romance happens every day. Romance now happens when I come home and the house is chaos. All you guys are like, no, that's not, I would never say that publicly. My house is always immaculate. And you walk in the door and there's books stacked to the ceiling. 
The kids are coming in, you know, their hair's all over. Charlie rubbed dog poop in my hair. You know, Mary's in the kitchen, wading through a pile of dishes. Honey, I'm in here. And I'm like, God, she's beautiful. That's romance today. It's different. Because the goal's changed. Because the goal of marriage is not have a romantic relationship. Because if it was, the kids would get in the way and I'd be angry all the time. Now the goal of marriage is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. So when one of us, me or my wife, is sowing into those objectives, it's romantic in its, in its appearance, in its appeal. So, be fruitful, enjoy the result of your romance, have children, don't prevent it. Two, multiply. This is not have many children. That's be fruitful. How many fruit trees have but one apple? Not very many, right? That means multiply is not about being fruitful. Multiply is actually about making copies of you. What's multiplication in its essence? It's taking a single number and multiplying it many times over. So if it's two and you multiply it times four, you now have two and two and two and two. Four twos. So multiplication is taking you and repeating it in your children. Discipleship. That's what multiplication is. Multiplication is raising up children in your image. Why? Because that's what God has done to you. He has raised you up in his image. Now you're just repeating that with your children. That's multiplication. It's so simple. But I'm going to ask you this. If you're a parent, when was the last time that you thought your day home with your kids, climbing over you, was as valuable with regard to discipleship as the small group you lead on Monday evenings where three young men or young women show up. I'm going to tell you, if you were to ask most of us in this room, if we were leading a small group of three or four people every single day of the week, would you feel like a rock star in ministry? And you'd say, absolutely. Are you kidding me? I have discipleship going nonstop. And you say, if you don't lead a small group, but you have three young kids at home, do you feel like a rock star in ministry? And they go, God, no, I feel like a failure. I don't do anything. It's because we've lost that the primary objective for marriage is be fruitful, multiply, disciple the children. You have the ability to raise up kids in your image and leave a legacy that will not perish. If you view raising your children as valuable in the sight of God, parents, this is you today. For those of you whose kids graduated yesterday, you did it. You multiplied. Congratulations. Because yesterday, one of two things happened for parents that sat and watched a graduation ceremony. Either they celebrated because they watched their children do something that they had set out in their hearts long ago for their, parent, for their children to do. And they watched their kids walk across the stage either with great celebration and pride that they made it and they were godly throughout and there was great celebrating and joy or great grief that I didn't disciple my children the way I should have and they didn't 
I didn't multiply. And they didn't become in God's image like they could have. And for you, parents of children who attend Water's Edge and only Water's Edge Church, great celebration. Uh, I'm kidding. For you parents, seriously, your kids that have remained godly, you should watch and celebrate because you multiplied. You, whether you knew it or not, fulfilled the second of the five great objectives that God set forth for marriage. The fruitfulness, we're all good at that, right? Just kidding. Uh, multiply is discipling of the kids. And whether you knew it or not, parents, you did it. Great job. Fill the earth. Expand the territory as these children grow and mature. What does that mean? That's the season that you as parents are entering into today. Yesterday was the culmination, essentially, of the multiplication, right? Now they're grown-ups, and they're on their own. Well, they should be. And if you graduated and you're not, we should talk. All right, they're grown-ups, and you're ready to enter this next season of life, which is what? Taking on life, responsibilities, adulthood of your own. This is filling the earth. When Adam and Eve set out, they had a garden that surrounded them. And what they were told to do is have children, raise them up to be like you, because Adam and Eve, you're like me, and now go and fill the earth. Well, that means take the next belt of territory around the garden. Fill it up with children. Adam and Eve, have the kids. Raise them up, disciple them, and then send them out into the next ring around the garden. Fill the earth. That's what you're doing with your kids today. They're done with school. They graduate. All right, now it's time to send them out on their own. It was a good point. I don't know why you're leaving. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know that guy. Um, today, that's my brother, for those of you who don't know. Today, many of you parents, you're commencing the season where now your role is to fill the earth with the children you've spent the last 21 to 25 to maybe 35 years multiplying or discipling. So now, parents, your role shifts from discipling to empowering. You've spent years discipling your kids, teaching them wrong from right, helping them through the trials of the teen years in college. Now your role becomes empowering. Give them a platform where they can stand and take territory of their own. Now it's time to help your children get established on their own that they might expand the territory that you've already cultivated. I'm going to push up against a little bit of a boundary here. In our culture, it's normal to wait until death to help your kids out. Right? We retire. It's mostly about us at this point still. And then when we, we die, then we, right? That's when the will happens and our kids get all our stuff after you're dead. I'm going I'm to go over my bounds here, but I'm going to tell you that I think that we should be giving stuff to our kids long before we're dead. Because I think our kids would like to enjoy a lot of it with us. And in the Jewish culture, what would actually happen is when the young man would come of age, his father would take him out and he would hand over the entire family business to him while he was still more than capable of running it himself. So parents, what I'm trying to tell you is at this stage of life when you have responsible kids and they're looking to take new territory of their own, a lot of what you've accumulated 
can be and should appropriately be used to help get them established on their own as well. Number four, subdue it. This is the work to bring a territory that's out of line with God's ways into alignment with God's ways. This is the work part, subdue it. The multiplication part, the discipling kids, that's not really work, right? Thank you, Randy. That was a joke, if you didn't catch it. But subduing the earth is now the work of adulthood. It's where the children come alongside the parents, adults themselves, and together they subdue new territories. Taking anything that's out of line with God's ways and aligning it with God's ways. I'm going to give you two examples. So we bought this house that had some land with it, and beside it, and the land that we bought was largely extremely well cultivated. Um, long story short, the, the prior owners had uh, gotten a grant and there's like $380,000 worth of landscaping that went into this property before we bought it. So when we bought it, you know, other than 25 gallons of lawnmower gas a month uh, to mow the nine-acre yard or whatever it is, I don't have a whole lot of cultivating to do on our property. So next door, this piece of land was for sale, and I sat and watched it, and I was really hoped to get it. And the price kept coming down, 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 because it was trashed. Somebody logged it and abused it. And if you want the guy's name, I won't give it to you because you don't want to use him as a logger. Um, so the other day I'm out with my kids and we're going and we're, we're clearing trails and we're you know, dealing with all this nasty brush and, and one of my girls goes, why are we doing this? And I said, this is subduing the earth. This is taking what is out of alignment with God's way and converting it so that it follows God's way. There's no destruction of the earth that happens in heaven without purpose. The other application I'm going to give you is my workplace. I want our business to reflect God's business and God's economy. I want what we do to have the same principles, the same priorities that heaven has. And so we set out in the workplace to literally make the wrong things right. With staff, with the people that we deal with, we want to do things the right way. And that's subduing the earth as well. Subduing the earth isn't just praying for the sick. It's not just casting out demons. There are natural applications that can be used when you walk outside and you're setting the wrong things right. And there are, there are applications that in the workplace where you're taking the wrong things and you're making them right, that's subduing the earth. I'm going to editorialize for just a moment because I'm getting close to the end. And I'm going to, I'm going to touch on, a, on an issue that's it's important to a lot of people. And I'm going to talk about environmental conservation in light of subduing the earth. Most importantly... The heavens were made for God, but the earth he gave to man. It is our responsibility to care for the earth that we've been given in a way that is non-destructive while leveraging the resources the earth provides to bear fruit unto God. 
God didn't chastise or punish those that mined gold to create wealth. He didn't. In fact, many of them were lauded. But he did punish those that, for example, mistreated animals. Remember when uh, they, uh, oh, who were the two boys? That ham, uh, uh, the priests, the ham, hamstrung an ox. The priest's sons, Eli's sons, they hamstrung an ox. And they had no intention of using the animal for good. And he punished them. Because they took the creation they'd been given and they brought destruction to it without any intention or application for good. This tells me that we need to responsibly manage the resources we've been given for the full benefit of God's kingdom. In other words, God didn't say don't use anything that the earth provides as a resource to benefit the kingdom, create wealth or otherwise. He said do it in the right way. I heard someone say yesterday, um, two days ago I guess it was, development and conservation should never be viewed as two separate silos. They're one and the same and must be treated as such. So you should never separate development or right industry growth and conservation. They should never be separated. One of the great destructions that came was when we separated those two and acted like we could treat them separately. They have to be treated one and the same, conservation and development. So this is part of subduing the earth. If we go out and we bring destruction to what God gave us to oversee, punishment came to those in the Bible who did so, and we should expect it for us. But if we go out and we use it, leverage it, and manage it, that's a biblical application. Fifth point, have dominion. Be in charge of the territory that you subdued. So have dominion. What this actually meant was you would go out and there would be war where conflict would happen and you'd be victorious because you were the armies of God. What would then happen is you would take dominion and what that meant was you would implement all the laws of God in the territory that you just conquered and then you would leave someone there to oversee it to make sure those laws remained. In other words, you don't just go have a fight for the sake of the fight. You don't just go subdue the earth. I'll give you an example. When you go out and you pray for healing, it doesn't just end with healing. The idea is that, per- that that person would come into the kingdom of God and live the rest of their lives according to the ways of God. If all you do is heal the wound, you never deal with the greater issue, which is that person coming into relationship with God and living their lives according to the way God would have them live. So the end goal isn't subduing the earth, it's subduing the earth and then taking dominion, where all things operate according to God's way, method, and means. So dominion is where you take what you subdued and you implement all of God's ways throughout it. We do it in our homes all the time and we don't realize that this is what it's called. But when you straighten things out with your kids, you sit them down and you teach them, okay, that's not the way we do things, we do things this way. It doesn't just end with discipline, subduing the earth. It ends with instruction, training, teaching, developing, so that they then do things according to God's ways from that point forward. That's dominion. All right, to summarize. Number one, 
Cultivate your lives and marriage to reflect the realities of God's kingdom. When you find things in yourself that do not reflect God's kingdom, stop, repent, change. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who aren't married, now's your chance to do that before it gets more difficult because you'll have to do it anyway when you get married, but now you've got another person who's going to kill you if you don't. We're not recording, are we? Number two, be fruitful. Enjoy the fruits of romance and have children, spiritual and natural. If you're not married... Don't have kids, please. Just wait. You'll get your chance. And then they just come like crazy. And it's great. It's great. I'm thankful that God changed my heart about kids before I even knew this. Because it, my greatest joy now is from getting to spend time with my wife and my kids. It's amazing. Um, but be fruitful, enjoy the fruits of your romance, and have children, spiritual and natural. If you can't have children, you should not be down on yourself. There's, there's a, a spiritual application that the Apostle Paul, who's known as the great apostle, lived for the remainder of his life where he didn't have kids. Natural. But he had thousands of spiritual ones. So whatever it is and whatever you're capable of, get busy having children, either natural or spiritual, whatever you can do. Multiply. When you have children, don't just let them go run roughshod throughout creation. It is your responsibility to disciple your kids. Parents, this one's for you. You guys are doing a great job discipling your kids, but some of you don't feel it. Some of you feel like you're not doing enough. I'm not involved with the church enough. If you dropped out of church life and all you did was disciple your kids, 20 years from now, you would look like a genius. Because you're going to have children that are walking in the ways of God. I always tell people, please don't sacrifice your children on the altar of ministry or career. Disciple your kids. And when you've done it, celebrate it. Parents, graduation weekend, I know you're celebrating your kids, but you should be celebrating yourselves too. You, you did it. You multiplied. You did a good job. Fill the earth. Now take your kids who are in their mid-20s, early 20s for some of these really advanced ones. It's finished the college in four years. Um, now they're ready. You guys are like, what? People used to finish school in four years. Um, I didn't, but other people did. <laughs> You've multiplied. Now fill the earth. T don't be afraid to take some of the resources you have and use them to get your kids into new territory that they could start to subdue that territory on their own. Empower your children. Believe in them, support them, and help them step into this next tier of life. Subdue the earth. Now, once they step into this territory, help them cultivate it and bring it into alignment with God's kingdom the same way you did yours. This isn't send them off, see you later. Empowerment includes accountability and support. 
You don't just send them into new territory and say, see in 20, I hope it goes well. You check in on them. Is there anything I can do for you? Are, do, do you have any questions of things that you're running into? Because parents, you probably addressed those same questions 20 years ago when you first stepped into your new territory and you first got married or you got your first jobs. Graduates, don't make the mistake of going out there and trying to do this on your own. Don't go make the mistake of trying to prove to everybody that you can do it on your own. Your parents, your mentors, your pastors, these people have done it before. Pick up the phone and say, I've run into something, Dad. I'm not sure what to do. But I assume you probably dealt with this 25 years ago when you first got married. Can you give me any, can you give me any advice, guidance? Students, the worst thing you can be right now is arrogant. Humility acknowledges that you don't know everything yet. Humility is one of the greatest attributes that you should never lose. We all know it, but we often lose it anyway. Humility is where you know you don't know everything. You don't have to know what you don't know, but you should know that you don't know. You can, Rob, you can think about it later. Just send me an email when it, when it all comes together for you. Know that you don't know everything and ask those who do for help. That will make you successful in subduing the earth. And once you've, had, you've subdued a new territory, now, students, you guys start your own fruitfulness, multiplication, and so on. Have dominion over it. Implement God's ways into whatever you do. So as you go out and you choose careers, I'm going to pray for you here at the end that when you get into a job, that when you see something that's out of line with God's kingdom, that you can't live with inaction. I'm going to pray that you will not be at peace until you take action to try to correct it. That's a part of subduing the earth. So as you step into your new career, I'm going to pray for you that you will take with you the power of God and heaven to subdue that new territory. And when you don't know what to do, you'll pick up the phone and call someone who can help. So I'm going to pray now, and, and then uh, we'll get you guys out of here. Father, thank you for... Father, thank you for parents that are fruitful. Father, thank you for the parents here whose students are in college and graduating, that they have multiplied themselves, that they created children in their own image. Lord, I ask that today you'd encourage them. Just encourage them that they have done what you asked them to do. They've done what you gave Adam and Eve to do before the fall. Lord, and as our students go out and they step into new territory of their own, I ask that their parents would be there helping them, supporting them, guiding them, empowering them to take this new territory and make it a garden for the kingdom. Thank you for your presence and always being with us, Father. We love you. Amen.